So, so last week, as we continued on this, in the series of Acts, uh, Pastor Larry spoke on evangelism, and, you know, he gave this great illustration of, you know, he loves Shake Shack burgers, and if he just gives it away, uh, this is my interpretation, if he gives it away and never talks about it, people might think he's a great chef, you know, but until he actually speaks about it and, and tells them this is why he thinks it's important, or, or what he loves about in the burger, people won't know it's Shake Shack. And he, he kind of gave that illustration as, a, as also understanding in ways that we think about evangelism, sharing about Jesus, right? And this is something <clears throat> that we talk a lot about, but I think it's, it's rooted. It's rooted in, our, in the Great Commission. It's rooted in really after what's important for us in today's message is what happens afterwards. You know, it's interesting when we talk about sharing our faith being witnesses, I think one thing that, that really is important, and sometimes in today's time, it might, in a, it might be hard, is what happens after you share about, what, about who Jesus is, right? What happens after that, you know? And I think this is a, a reminder for us, and today's message is about conversion of Saul. We're going to look at Acts 9 from verses 1 through 19, but it is his transformation, how God transforms him, how God moves in his life and <clears throat> kind of takes him from a, a being persecuting Christians to being persecuted right over time. And for him, what, what he goes through in his right now, his initial encounter with Jesus. And this is something that I think, especially in a pluralistic and relative, relativistic world today, that we contend it's hard to share about the gospel. And even when we share, it is about sharing what we really believe, right? I realize this more and more. If you guys know me, uh, know about me, there's some things that over the years, I don't know, it started from college. And in the West Coast, when I grew up, I never had, you know, we never needed a really good jacket. You know, you just, you could go with fleece. It's always 70s or something, 60s maybe. Uh, any old Navy fleece for me would be perfectly fine, right? But for some reason, we got, when I moved to the East Coast, it got really cold at times. And sometimes I'm just like, oh man, this is freezing outside. And I like to be warm, right? And so if you know, know something, in college, I found out about this brand, Patagonia. And over the years, I've been just stocking up on little things here and there because I love their product, right? And my family, I started buying them stuff. And suddenly, more and more people around me, especially my family, they're like, oh, this is actually good. It's warm, right? And then it's similar to the Shake Shack, you know, in a, in a sense where when I shared with them, I actually was like, hey, I think you should utilize their ironclad, you know, guarantee. If something goes wrong, they'll fix it for you. All these other things about it, where I realized more and more that it's not just something I'm like, oh, that's good to know, but rather it's, man, that's helpful, that's something I wish would be good for you, right? And I think when we think about it in, in terms of witnessing of Jesus, it's not just sharing the, you know, the good news, which it is, but also a, a deep desire for all around us, people all around us, to have the same experience and to experience the love of God in the ways that you and I have. Right, to experience that, to know this richness of a relationship with God. And it is a deep desire that it's not just, oh, I want to have a conversion. No, not at all. Because we can't, we are powerless 
But rather in this story, what we see is that there's such richness to having this relationship with God that you would desire for others to encounter, to enjoy, and to experience. And likewise, it is something for us, not that it changes our love for each other at all, for those who don't believe and believe, but that it is a deep desire that we want people to have this experience with God that has transformed our lives, that hopefully will transform, and we know his spirit will always transform those around us, right? And we'll see that in this, in this story, conversion of Saul, right? So today we're going <laughs> to kind of flip through a couple, three things briefly. It's very simple. What happens before Saul's conversion, Saul's encounter with God, right? Then we'll see this verse, Act 9, this encounter with God and what happens then. And lastly, we'll see how he, what happens right afterwards, right? And not even just right afterwards, and even as we continue on what we understand of the New Testament and what changes in his life. This idea of before, and I think I want to kind of reiterate this, is that God can change the most unlikely of sinners and use them for his glory. God can change the most unlikely of sinners and use them for his glory. All right, to get a little background, we kind of mentioned this throughout <clears throat> the series. And when, when we spoke about uh, the martyr Stephen and we spoke about the persecution of the church. But here in Acts 8, just the chapter before, right, this is the beginning of Acts 8. So Acts 7 at the end was when Stephen was, was stoned to death. He was, a, uh, you know, the, a martyr for Christ. It says that they were laying the clothes before him. And it says in Acts 8, verses 1 to 3, and Saul, he was there. He approved of their killing, killing him, Stephen. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Right? You see the story of Saul, this before what he was, <clears throat> what he was doing. He approved of this killing of Stephen. He heard the story. He heard that this powerful message that Stephen was giving. And, and for them to understand, especially Jewish leaders, to understand the Old Testament. He heard all that, but it didn't click. Right? At the same time, he was <clears throat> determined to destroy the church. He went house to house, dragging off both men and women. Later on in Acts 26, as Paul, as his name turns, he changes his name, as God changes it his name. He gives an account of his own background and what he was determined to do, right? This gives you a, a picture of it. I'm going to just take a, a snapshot of it. Acts 26 verses 9 to 11. He's saying this, I, Saul, too, was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and that this is just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the Lord's people in prison, and when, they were put to, and when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished, and I tried to force them to blaspheme. I was so obsessed with persecuting them that I even hunting them, hunted them down in foreign cities. Right, you see this picture of Saul, a man that, that was determined, obsessed to persecuting the church, to destroying it, to hunting down people that 
believed in Jesus. Right? And this is the man that kind of starts the story in Acts 9. Right? Acts 9, verse, we're just going to go through three verses first. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciple. He went to the high priest and asked him for the letters to the synagogue in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. Right, so he's going to Damascus. We kind of see that in Acts 26 or later on that he kind of gives his account. He's going there to persecute Christians. He's going there to look for them, to take prisoners back to Jerusalem, people that have followed Jesus. He's trying to persecute these men and women that follow Jesus. And in this journey and on this way, on his way there, that he encounters this light from heaven that flashed around him. I think this is something that <clears throat> brings me to the first point, that God changes the most unlikely of sinners. Right Before, before what we see is a man that's determined to persecute and hurt and stop the message of Jesus going all around. And I think this is something that is a challenge for us sometimes. Because sometimes we may just think about when we see a story like this, it challenges me at least, think, who are the people that I see as kind of the usual suspects, right? So there's people that we might think about that, oh, I want to share with him or her because we think that they may need it or they may want it. But what we see in Paul's life or Saul's life right now is that God encounters someone that was seemingly unlikely to come to know him. He heard the message from Stephan, a powerful message about from the ancestors all the way on and why Jesus was the Messiah and had to be crucified. Yet he didn't believe at that moment. He was angry at Christians, desired and obsessed with persecuting them. And in this path and on this journey, God encounters him. I think that's a challenge for us. Who are the people that perhaps sometimes we might see only as likely or sometimes as unlikely? I remember when I went to Mozambique and I was thinking about this of just, who am I sharing with? You know, it's a lot of times when Pastor Larry was talking about, I was caught up in this idea that missions is somewhere far away. Missions is somewhere that God sends me to. Right? Missions is somewhere not necessarily around my house, in my neighborhood, in my community, at my, at my school, but rather it's somewhere further away. But I realized perhaps that's been completely incorrect this whole time for myself. That missions is all around me. It's in my community. It's in the people that I engage with on a day-to-day -day basis. That it is people that I might see and might think want God or people that may not even seem that they want God. That you see in, in Saul's life, he had multiple encounters with Christian. He even tried to make them blasphemy, right? He made them, he was forcing them to try to speak against God, right? He knew what he was doing. He understood, but yet his heart was unchanged, right? This was the person that God was encountering that God had in mind. And sometimes I think that needs to challenge us to change our perspective of the people in our lives, perhaps that seek or need God. That we 
ourselves are not righteous. Do you know, I think that sometimes we see that as, oh, I'm saved and this is good. But rather, what it says in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, rather we need to see that we have all sinned, that we have all fallen short. For Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring you to God. Right? I think this is an, a, a challenge, not for us to see as, you know, I, I've, I'm here and this is some people there. No, we're all on the same playing field, the same level as we approach God, as we seek God. And that there is no better or worse. There's this, there's this desire to seek out God. Who do you desire? Who are you ministering? Who are you speaking to? Because we never know who will we encounter in the before stage. Who needs to hear? Who needs to be reminded? Who we might over time see the changes. And in his conversion, what we see this before picture of a man that persecuted, that hunted, that hated Jesus to this encounter with God. Right? And, and we see this encounter with God is this understanding and repentance of sin understanding of sin and repentance of sin, this turning away from this old lifestyle of heading towards sin, right? We see this in Acts 9 verses 4 onwards. It says, when he sees the light, right, saw he fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up, and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but did not see anyone. Excuse me. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days, he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. Now, I, I want to say that this is... <clears throat> For, for Saul, when things clicked for him, when things made sense, when he understood, first, it was very clear that God made it very clear to him. He says, who are you? And he says, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. I think the question is, you know, similar to Adam and Eve, did God have to ask, did he not know the answer to that already? He says, why do you persecute me? Did he not know the answer? No, he knew Already, It was for Paul, Saul's sake that he was asking this question, asking him to understand that he was persecuting Jesus, specifically who he is, right? Persecuting, reminding, connecting those dots. And I think this is what led to Saul's repentance and understanding of his sin. It says, for three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. I think it's hard. I was even going to come up with illustrations like everyone closed their eyes for the next 30 minutes and just see how it'd be, you know, but I know if it was myself during this time, I might fall asleep back then, right? But for three days, he was blind. He could not see. But you would think, you would know that he is wrestling. He didn't eat. He didn't drink. Later on, it said he was praying, right? There's this recognition, this understanding of what he has done the sin that he has committed, all right, and all the persecution, how it has added the weight 
in his life. Right? <clears throat> I think sometimes we see that as some supernatural, oh man, this once in a moment, he points to this, Saul points to this as, on this day, on my road to Damascus, I encountered God and I was saved. But I realize perhaps many of us, at least for myself, it was not this once moment. And it may not be for you. It may not be this one time I remember the exact date where I was sitting when I raised my hand, whatever it might be, but that it might be a slow process. All right, I remember reading about this man, Jim Elliott. He was a missionary and you know he, he was martyred. But I remember reading his, his biography and I, I really loved when, when he was writing in his journal. This is why I really like reading journals, for example, because it gets a, a picture of people's thoughts and what they were wrestling and what they're thinking about. He wrote this as, as he was in college. He says, I'm the few people at Wheaton who believes that a man does not have to come, <clears throat> does not have to come all at once into the family of God with a jolt and accompanying spinal exhilaration. Personally, I wasn't saved all at once, but took some years coming into my present settled convictions about the truth of God. So why should I demand that conversions be immediate in all others? Christ healed men differently. He goes on and says, he gives all the different examples. Let not him who accepts light in an instant despise him who gropes months in shadows. It took, 12, it took the 12 three years to apprehend what was being shown to them. The natural so often illustrates of the spiritual teaches that healing and growth, even birth are processes. And I think we alter callers often perform abortions to haste to see results, right? I remember just reading that, and it just gave me such reassurance that sometimes for people like myself, that it wasn't a specific date, a specific time, but it was a process. It was a process of transformation, a process of encountering God, and a process of understanding and repenting of sin. And in this way, it, it took time. But what is true is that there is a recognition, there is an understanding, a repentance of sin at some point. I think as he was fasting, it goes on in Acts 11 and 12, it says, in Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias, the Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. And this is so specific. He tells him where to go, what street he's in, what house he's at, the name, and that he's already had a vision about him coming. All right. And of course, Ananias is responding and saying, what? Are you sure? Right. It says, it goes on, Lord, Ananias answered, I had I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Right, you see this encounter with God. He's on this journey, he sees the light, he hears 
you know, whether it's an audible voice, it, it probably is for him that the other people heard some sound, right? He hears this. He then responds in certain He encounters God, but he also responds to God. He recognizes his sin. He's fasting and he's praying in this whole process. And I think, you know, next week we're going to even, I mean, I wish I could go even more about Ananias. Next week we're going to talk about a little bit about Barnabas. But the people of God that helps restore Saul from being far away to this, into this community, right? But Ananias is never mentioned in the scriptures again. Right? This, this random person that was faithful to God, responding to knowingly this person that persecutes and saying, you have to go and heal him, restore his sight being angry at him, perhaps seeing his friends, people that he knows, being persecuted by Saul to go and, and kind of be used by God to restore his sight. And you see that he's one of many, right? And we're going to go through that next week. But I want to focus on this understanding and repentance of sin. Right? You see for Saul as he encounters God, he stops. He's fasting. He's praying. He's probably prayed his whole life before as a Pharisee, spent time. But this is the time where he sees, a, he sees a vision. He is encountering God in certain ways. And I believe that he knows what he has done. And he is turning away from that. He recognizes what he has done. Perhaps it will always, and what we'll see later, kind of be within him of that he is persecuted his brothers and sisters, but that there is this specific, this encounter with God. And like I said, this encounter does not have to be one particular instance, but it could be a process, but that there's distinction between this before this encounter and after, and the next last point, this after, right? This transformation, that heartfelt repentance leads to transformation by the Holy Spirit. Right, this heartfelt repentance leads to transformation by the Holy Spirit. You see, as as he is praying, as he is encountered, and he sees Ananias, or Ananias comes to him. Right, he goes to this house, and in verse seventeen, it says, "Placing Ananias' hands on Saul, he says, Brother Saul.' I mean, that's a, that's crazy to call him brother, right? The Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here." has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. Right? It was, his encounter was also confirmed in many ways of knowing that this is God moving in his life, transforming his life. Right, later on, it says in Acts 22, as he gives more of an account. This is Luke's account as he's writing. <clears throat> but later on, they account, the account is Paul's own account of what Ananias says to him. Right? You see what, he's, what Paul is thinking about later on. But one of the things is this. Right? <clears throat> he sees what he has done. In Acts 26, he's speaking to the governor. And this is Paul's account. I am Jesus. He gives us of the same story. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. Now get up and stand on your feet. And I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant, as a witness 
of what you have seen and will see of me. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. You know, as he is <clears throat> encountering this, that he recognizes over time, he knows this is his calling, his new identity, and his purpose. That there was a change in his life. What I didn't mention is in Galatians, it also mentions that perhaps after this portion in Damascus, he goes off in three years into the desert, right? And he kind of is encountering God and is being spoken to and trained by God. And he says he specifically does not speak to the apostles during that time. That during those years for him to refine, to understand what he's known And in this way, he comes back later on with this understanding. I'm going to fast forward because it shows you a better understanding of a, a picture of him understanding and his transformation. In 1 Corinthians 15, verses 9 to 10, Paul says this, right? His name, Saul to Paul, for I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. This transformation for him was recognized, was, no, was known, and he strove for this transformation. He understood, and he had allowed the Spirit to work in his life. In Galatians, he writes about this. He writes about the fruit of the Spirit. You know, I love when our, 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 <clears throat> the GLC kids, they memorize this verse. And they've been, you know, I know David's been speaking on it. They memorize multiple verses. But Galatians 5, to 25, Paul writes, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. He sees this, he understands it, and over time, it's not instantaneous perhaps, but over time that there is a transformation, this encounter with God, this transformation by the Holy Spirit. You know, I, I think when we talk about this in this, his life, we're just like, oh, that's nice. This before, this encounter, this after. But I want to end with this. Why is it important to us? Why is this important to, to us? I think oftentimes, I think we perhaps only see this as, oh, that's a conversion. Like we want to share, especially last week, share the faith with those around us. But in reality, I think it goes beyond that too, right? It's teaching them to know and obey the teachings of Christ. It's to follow Jesus, not just to believe in Jesus, right? And, and for even for us, what does that look like? Because it's hard to share what we ourselves don't live through. All right, why is this important to us? 
I think it's important in many ways of who we see needs Jesus or who we see can actually receive Jesus. It challenges our understanding and even our understanding of what happens when our enemy accepts Christ. Right? What happens when those who have wronged us accept Christ? What, what do we do then? How do we respond? Are we going to be like the Ananias or the Barnabas later on we hear? What else is important to us? What does that transformation look like in your life? You know, over these years, what does that look like as you accepted Christ? For those who, you, who have accepted and believed, what does that look like? For the spirit to work in your life, for you and I to receive, and not just to, to say, I believe and I have this eternal life, but rather, no, I believe, Jesus, that you have come, died on the cross for my sins, given me new life, and I am a new creation. That my passions, my goals are now not just that. That I want and desire to seek your kingdom. What does that look like? Because we can talk about conversion. We can talk about his life being transformed. I think the question also remains, what does it look like for our lives to be transformed? For our continued renewal process of being more and more like Jesus. And that is a reminder for us. We're going to take communion. I'm going to invite the, the worship team to come up. But as we take communion, you know, <clears throat> and these elements, it is a reminder that Jesus says, this is my body broken for you. This is the new life that you and I have. This is my blood, the new covenant. As we are reminded of that, I think <clears throat> I want to challenge us as we take this to spend a minute and think, God, what is this for me? That you have given your life to buy my life. How am I a new creation living for you? Let's pray. Lord, we are thankful, Lord, that you sent your son to provide a way. That we see in this life that it is not by merit or what can be earned or knowledge that what could be learned, but it is only through your spirit. Lord, a transforming soul of understanding, not just facts or the law, but understanding your son. It is only through your spirit that transform his life from one who is obsessed and persecuting church to be the one being persecuted. That he would proclaim your name throughout all the earth. Lord, you have given us the same spirit. Lord, you have given us new life, new purpose. So Lord, as we take of this communion, as we are reminded of your sacrifice, would your spirit lead us, Lord, in how this new life, new identity, new purpose, my look in your kingdom and not ours. So Lord, we pray for your spirit. 
we know we can't do it on our own, but that it is only you. So as we partake in the elements, would you remind us? Would you show us? Would you speak? Still small voice to know that it is you. We thank you, Lord. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.